Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. But of course, Griffin's one-sided and conspiracist view of the Fed misses the actual issues that our intrepid interviewee is pointing out. And we're going to get to those real issues. But before we do that, we'd like to take a moment to let Breen tear apart the work of several other authors who build upon Griffin's wrong-but-boring edifice to craft their own more entertainingly incorrect theses. We will handle these in increasing order of strident insanity. He would claim he hates to do this to an interviewee and a close friend, but then he would be lying. True. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce the books we'll be ridiculing through the good offices of our Fed expert. The first is a saucy little number titled The Federal Reserve Conspiracy by Anthony C. Sutton, which starts off by arguing, There is a vast misconception about the Fed. The President and the Congress have very little, if any, influence on policy. Congress handed over all monetary powers to the Fed in 1913. The Fed is a private bank owned by banks and pays dividends on its shares owned only by banks. The Fed is a private banker's bank. What do you say to that, Breen? Here's the problem. Almost all of the money we use in our daily lives is not created by the Fed. It is created by private commercial banks. When the bank loans you money, they are creating new dollars. So the best way to think about the Fed is that the Fed is the government's way of controlling or attempting to control how much new money private bankers or commercial bankers can create by making loans. They can raise or lower interest rates to encourage or discourage banks from making loans, but what they can't do is force a bank to make a loan. The bank is responsible for deciding. The commercial bank, the place where you've got a checking account, is responsible for deciding whether or not to make loans. Those loans are money. So the idea that Congress gave the Fed the power to make money um, completely ignores how money is actually created. Almost all of it is private. So no, the Congress did not hand over all of its monetary powers to the Fed. The Fed is a tool that is answerable to Congress. There is a problem, which is that Congress doesn't take an active enough role in what the Fed does or how things work. But the Fed is answerable to a charter from the United States Congress. The Fed is 
very canny about its relationships with Congress because it knows that there are certain things that it can't do because they would make Congress feel uncomfortable. And in fact, we just had a Federal Reserve appointment, Sarah Bloom Raskin. She had made noises uh, before her confirmation hearings about how she thought that banks should be stress tested for climate risks. Congress, for obvious reasons, really didn't like that at all. And they found ways to make sure that she was not confirmed. Congress has a tremendous amount of influence over the Fed when it cares to exercise that influence. The idea that it's this secretive body that's got no democratic check on it sort of completely misunderstands the nature of the relationship between Congress and the Fed. Uh, Jesuit, are we supposed to be surprised that the anti-Fed conspiracists are just as wrong as other conspiracists? I mean, not really. But do you remember that scene in Annie Hall where Alvy and Annie are in line at the movies and some middle-aged a-hole academic is declaiming to his young date about the work of seminal media and culture critic Marshall McLuhan? And then Alvy starts talking to the audience through the fourth wall about how terrible it is to have to listen to this douchebag. And all of a sudden, the douchebag also breaks the fourth wall and argues that the audience should hear his side of the story since he's a McLuhan expert. And then Alvy says, Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so, yeah, just let me, let me, let me, let me come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, him. I heard what you were saying. And then the real honest-to-God Marshall McLuhan is there and just tears this pretentious academic to shreds as Alvy watches, soaking up the schadenfreude. And then our hero caps the scene with the immortal line, Boy, if life were only like this. Well, this is my version of that. And Breen is my Marshall McLuhan. Why all the secrecy and caution? Simply because the Fed has a legal monopoly of money granted by Congress in 1913. Proceedings that were unconstitutional and fraudulent. Most of Congress had no idea of the contents of the Federal Reserve Bill signed by President Woodrow Wilson, who was in debt to Wall Street. The Federal Reserve has the power to create money. This money is fiction, created out of nothing. This can be money in the form of created credit through the discount window at which other banks borrow at the discount rate of interest, or can be notes printed by the Treasury and sold to the Fed and paid for by Fed-created funds. I mean, it was definitely a plan cooked up on Wall Street. It was cooked up by financiers, by Paul Warburg, who looked around at the, the, the way uh, Americans regulated their money supply and thought that it was uh, crazy and unstable. Um, but no, Wilson was sort of the last point in the plan. So, no, the Fed did not invent creating money out of nothing. The Fed does not create money out of nothing. The Fed, like any other bank, has liabilities and it has assets. And we can look at the books and we can know exactly what the liabilities are. We know exactly what the assets are. This book explains how this money monopoly came about. Obviously, Congress and the general public were misled and lied to when the Federal Reserve Bank was in discussion. Why the monopoly has continued is that the public is lazy and so long as their individual world is reasonably fulfilling, has no reason to question Fed actions. First of all, let's start with the fact that the Fed does not have a monopoly on the creation of money. That's just wrong. There are many different people, public and private, creating money. So already when you use this word monopoly, you're creating this suspicious entity that's, that is not how things function. All of this stuff is sort of a matter of public record. We can look at these discussions. They're often complex. Here's how people thought about banks in 1913 and for most of the 19th century. So um, the idea that all of your value might be held by a private organization, then that that private organization might go belly up and everything you had might disappear. It was a relatively novel idea. Often during a financial crisis, everything disappeared. They were suspicious of the idea of a bank. They had to use banks. But if you were a farmer, there was a high likelihood that your bank would sort of disappear. Or when you really needed credit for seed, that the bank would not be there to provide it. 
People were suspicious of banks, particularly in New York, because often your country bank, with which you might have had a good relationship, was also getting screwed in a financial panic by New York bankers. So think of a central bank as a tool. There have been many different versions of central banks over three or four centuries in many different countries. Um, A central bank is just like a police force. There can be a good, responsible central bank. There can be a bad, corrupt, irresponsible central bank. Both of these things can exist. Neither of them is inherent in the nature of a central bank. The reason that the people who created the Federal Reserve pretended they were a hunting party and went down to Jekyll Island, that was definitely a secret that they were withholding. People were suspicious of control of the banking system from New York because in the past it had gone very poorly for them. So the idea that you might take a banking system where New York is in charge and turn it into an official congressionally mandated banking system where New York is really in charge. I can sort of understand why people might not like that idea and why it might be a really tough sell. The meetings are always secret, known only to the Fed directors. However, if we knew what Chairman Alan Greenspan was going to announce on monetary and credit policies, what the discount rate will be, or what the prime rate will be, we could quickly make a fortune because the knowledge has impact on treasury bill rates, on metals markets, on the stock market, and on real estate markets. The Federal Reserve System is a private system owned by the banks and gives only banks this advanced information. We just don't have any evidence that this is true. To just sort of casually say the Fed gives information to the banks in advance of its uh, decisions, there is an incredibly sophisticated apparatus of people trying to guess what the Fed is doing next. People pay ungodly sums of money to analysts who are trying to figure out what the Fed is going to do based on public pronouncements that the Fed gives out in code, and you're supposed to sort of figure out and be able to read the code. If they were giving the information to banks in advance, this whole process would be much easier. We wouldn't have to pay analysts. We journalists who cover the Fed wouldn't have to cover it. Anybody who needed the information would just go find a banker somehow attached to the Fed and pay them for the information. There would be a very efficient market. The problem is I can prove to you that this information isn't disseminated to the banks in advance. And my proof is this massive industry of Fed analysis and people desperately trying to guess what's going to happen. And the Fed is usually pretty good because the Fed doesn't like surprises. It doesn't like to surprise markets. Markets don't like to be surprised. And the the Fed feels like it's failed when it surprises markets. So anything it's going to do, it telegraphs well in advance in language that is clear to everybody who cares and is somehow vested. So I can tell you that if this information were being quietly disseminated through the banks, a lot of people would not have jobs doing Fed analysis. There would just be a quiet market of money being paid back and forth for insider information. That's not how any of this works. So clearly. Mr. Sutton is confused. To give him the benefit of the doubt. Indeed, but let's assume he's just confused and not deliberately obfuscating these previous points. We still need to deal with his characterization of the Panic of 1907, the inciting action for the creation of the Fed six years later, as a conspiracy in and of itself. In the public debate over the creation of the Federal Reserve System in the United States, the 1907 crash was repeatedly used as the reason to install a central bank in the United States. The Fed was put forward as a way to stop financial panics. However, the 1907 panic was deliberately created by the Standard Oil crowd and the Morgan firm. There is a long history of 
financial panics in 19th century America. There were a lot of them. They were devastating. It was a badly organized system. So the idea that the last panic that happened before the Federal Reserve was created, that one was engineered to believe that you kind of have to believe that all the financial panics that happened, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1872, all of these various panics were all engineered as part of a hundred year conspiracy to eventually, after the 1907 panic, create the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was created out of a long lived history of bank panics. And the other thing is, every time there's a bank panic, America changed. It affected politics. Like these things, we basically had a depression level financial crisis every 15 to 25 years in 19th century America. So the people who created the Federal Reserve were thinking of this entire history of bank panics and not the one that happened in 1907. Okay, the panic wasn't a deliberate intrigue by powerful bankers' agents. But what about the way the Fed has destroyed and debased our currency over a century plus? The act transferred control of the monetary supply of the United States from Congress to a private elite. Paper fiat currency replaced gold and silver. Wall Street financiers were able to tap an unlimited supply of fiat money at no cost. Bull shit. This is bullshit. Money before the Federal Reserve was not silver and gold. You look at any market, in any place, at any time in history, and you will find a sophisticated, complex mix of both metal currencies and private credit. That has always been the case. So the idea, everything was silver and gold, until all of a sudden the Fed said, nope, we're responsible for paper dollars, away with the gold and silver, it's just going to be paper from here. That's just offensively wrong horseshit. This idea... I think rightfully offends people to say that, you know, money was sound and a cabal of people made your money unsound and unstable. That's very appealing and very terrifying. It's, it's sort of it's an appealing conspiracy, because if that were true, like I would also be against this thing. The idea that money has immutably anchored to gold and silver until the last century is a historical horseshit. It really is. And it's destructive because it makes it impossible to talk about what money is and how money actually works. Wall Street financiers were able now to tap an unlimited supply of fiat money at no cost. What? That, I don't even know what that means. Like, I understand this stuff. I literally like I can't even figure out what that means so I can figure out how wrong it is. Wall Street was able to create credit. That means that they could create money in America since the Constitution. Private banks create credit. Wall Street was very large private banks. They created a ton of credit. Nothing about the Federal Reserve changed their ability to do this. It didn't. We didn't invent fiat money in 1913. Okay, that was a good, concise answer. And thankfully, in spite of the fact that shit like the book quote we just heard is a constant irritant for our stalwart expert, especially in discussions with gold bugs and crypto bros on Twitter, we somehow escaped the full fury of Breen's rant about fiat money. How do you know? Oh, uh... Because he told me. So I'm going to spare you my rant about how the word fiat has zero meaning. Nice. That bullet dodged. We turn our attention to the question of whether or no, not... No, I'm going to give you the rant. There's this idea that we have a fiat system, that money used to be based on gold and silver, and then it wasn't based on gold and silver anymore, and then that made it fiat, that, it, that existed at the fiat of the sovereign. This is nonsense. The word fiat applied to money, the best place we can trace it to is John Stuart Mill, who argued that... 
If a Congress created a paper money and was solely responsible for creating the volume of that paper money, then the value of that paper money would exist purely on the fiat of the parliament. Yeah, he's right. It would. But that's not how we create money now. None of this is created by magic out of Congress. This is money created by finance, which is the way we have always created money. So what changed in 1913 was the amount of control that the federal government had over the financial system. That's all that changed. The idea that fiat money was invented in 1913 is crazy in no small part because the term fiat money has no real meaning. Let me tell you something. When somebody uses the word fiat money, run screaming. That person has no idea what he's talking about. And I'm comfortable being gender specific here because it is a he. Hey, is he done? Is it safe? We conducted this interview over the phone, but I still kind of felt like I was dodging righteously angry spittle during that answer. Actually, while we're on this subject, it's worth acknowledging that, in fact, in spite of his busy schedule of book writing, PhD pursuing, and along with his delightful wife, wrangling his brood of children, Greeley spends a bit more time than is probably healthy arguing with various gold bugs. That is, those who, like Mr. Sutton, argue that everything went wrong economically when the U.S. went off the gold standard, and who in extreme versions believe that every single dollar of credit issued by banks should be backed up by a dollar of actual physical gold in their vaults. And crypto bros. Which, if you've been alive over the past half decade or so, should be familiar as a catch-all term for those assholes in your social media feeds who constantly tell you that cryptocurrencies are the future and you're missing the boat by not cashing out the old RRA and betting the proverbial farm on bro-coin, bro. Right. He argues with these types on Twitter quite often. To his own chagrin. And therefore has some observations about the particular ways they're wrong and why it's so infuriating. The Bitcoin bros are interesting. Often they're making a ton of arguments about what the Fed fails to do. Caters to banks, um, doesn't do anything for financial inclusion. Not that concerned about making it cheap to transfer money from one place to another. And not that concerned about making sure that all Americans uh, have access to sort of basis banking services. And they're right. They're right about that. They think they're right about that because the Fed is a big, uncaring, awful machine of elitists who are terrible and cackle. And they think that Bitcoin is the solution. I sort of know how the Fed works, and it's not a bunch of cackling people trying to do evil. It's a bunch of sort of people who are limited by the things they know and the people they know uh, who just sort of don't see some things. Bitcoin isn't the solution because you cannot engineer a solution to a social and political problem. It isn't any cheaper to provide access to banking through Bitcoin than it is through banking. Often on Twitter, Bitcoin maximalists hate me because I write about Bitcoin for the Financial Times. I'm often a target. And I find those conversations very frustrating because they're like, the system doesn't provide access to finance to most people and transfers are expensive and monetary policy favors the rich. And I'm like, yeah, all those things are true. I just disagree with you about everything else. But, you know, the Fed should care more about transfers. It should make it easier and cheaper to transfer money. In other countries, for example, you have to provide low-cost checking to everybody. They will find a way to get you into a bank account. That's just, not, that's just not true in America. And if you don't have a bank account, a bank can be a really weird, forbidding place. The fees are awful and hidden and hard to understand. Um, one of the things that we know about payday lenders is that people prefer them because they know exactly what's going to happen. 
They are not resentful at the high rates they pay to payday lender because at the very least they know exactly what the outcome is going to be. You don't always know that at a bank. My answer to your question about the Bitcoiners is it's frustrating because they too are diagnosing a system that has deep flaws in it. I don't agree with their solution, but the diagnosis is true. Like we've got the disease. Okay, I see that point. But what about the gold bugs? If we think to the sort of three theories of what money is, it's just a commodity. Everything that is not a physical object is an abstraction and not real and therefore not money or, you know, money is a creature of the state or money is a creature of credit. The gold bugs are the ones who believe absolutely that money is a commodity. Everything that's not something tangible in your hand that is a useful hard metal is an abstraction, a fiction. And so for them, the conspiracy is even more obvious. The Fed, at its inception, took bank money and made it the fixed system. And so if you believe that gold is the only real money and always has been, then yeah, of course, you're going to be super suspicious of an organization that can expand or contract the supply of credit money uh, in America because you're not that crazy about credit money to begin with. The problem with that is they subscribe to a history of money that's just not borne out. There's just no empiric research at all that says that money used to be coins and then it became an abstraction. It was always a combination of coins and credit. But if you think it was just coins, then of course you're mad at an organization that abstracts us from coins. So you can see the problem. The two groups who are most vocal about criticizing the Fed, which again is an institution that could definitely benefit from some well thought out external critiques. Right. But the only people critiquing at this point are either gold bugs who per brain don't have any idea of what money has been historically or Bitcoin bros who understand at least some legitimate critiques of the current financial system but who also labor under the false belief that their preferred blockchain deus ex machina will solve the whole problem. If all your pussies were just fucking not up and hodl, bro. At this point, it's inevitable that we had to go all paranoid strain and go one layer deeper than is probably advisable. In other words, if the gold bugs are wrong about what money is, then what is money? Honestly, given that this is the topic of Mr. Greeley's in-progress book, he should have known better than to ask. But here's the dramatically edited down version of that answer. If you have learned anything about what money is in a formal setting, if you've gone to college or if you took an economics class in high school, you learned it wrong. You learned the economist's version of what money is and how money works. The problem with that is you were taught what money is by a profession which, and I cannot say this plainly enough, economists loathe the idea of money because it's complicated and slippery and it gets in the way of their formulas. They want money to just be a marker. They do not want to think about money creation or how it works. They just want money to be this thing that allows people to count the things that they have and how they buy and sell them from each other. There's a non-trivial percentage of your listeners who right now are tuning out and I'm begging you stick around for a second because the way you were taught about money was wrong. If you took economics, you can recite this as a catechism. First, there was barter. People just traded back and forth, stuff for stuff. Then 
they discovered that uh, certain precious metals functioned as commodities, and then they stamped those precious metals into coins, which allowed them to verify the contents of those commodities, and then they traded the coins instead of trading the stuff. It reduces the friction of finding the exact number of cattle that you want to give me for the fish that I happen to have. Then at some point, paper came to represent coins, and then at some point, the coins fell away, and so now money is just sort of a collective illusion that we all agree to believe because it's sort of more convenient to have a paper. This is a historical horseshit. It is not how money started. Money is complicated. My favorite book about money is by a woman named Rebecca Spang. It was a book called Stuff and Money in the French Revolution. It's just a minute description of what actually happened. When you say somebody bought something from someone else, what was handed over? Like, how did that transaction work? And what we find market after market after market, every single historical market that I've ever studied, is just super complicated. There was no perfect market in the past where people are just issuing credits back and forth and there's no commodity. There's also no perfect market where people are just passing coins back and forth. The idea that medieval peasants were carrying around tiny pennies and sort of exchanging them and somebody had to invent credit for them 400 years later is, again, horseshit. So money is credit. But I still didn't really get how money is created in the economy. Like it seemed as if Breen was arguing that, contrary to what the conspiracists were saying, and Jesuit doesn't want to admit, contrary to the way he had nebulously thought the whole thing kind of worked. The Fed does not actually create or remove the money that's in circulation in the economy. That being the case, how does it do its job? Well, Jesuit, when a daddy money loves a mommy money very much. Yeah, I also considered that, but Breen tried to set us straight. The way to think about it is, in the modern U.S. economy, when somebody makes a loan, that creates new money, that manufactures new dollars. When you take out a mortgage, you do not borrow a sack of cash from the bank. What happens is the bank makes a transaction with you. It creates what, from the bank's perspective, is an asset. The bank looks at your mortgage and thinks of it as an asset. Because what's happening is you are paying them regularly with interest, and that will continue to bring in money over the 15 or 30 years that you hold the mortgage. In return, they didn't give you a sack of cash. They just marked up your account with a number of dollars that is equal to the value of your mortgage. They manufactured money. But it didn't take money from somewhere else and give it to you as that mortgage. It just marked up your account. That's all it did. When you create a loan, you are pushing brand new dollars out into the economy. When the loan gets paid off, those dollars disappear again from the economy. Everything other than the cash, and that's almost everything, is just a mark in a computer. It's just a mark in a database. And so we're trading database entries back and forth. Those database entries are manufactured when somebody makes a loan. That was setting us straight? Well, he tried, but I still didn't really get it. So he recommended that I read and watch a rather comprehensive explainer article and video put out by the Bank of England way back in 2014 when the new policy of quantitative easing to fight the still lingering effects of the Great Recession. Don't worry, he's not diving into quantitative easing. I'm not, but suffice it to say at the time, it was a big new economy stimulating idea from the major central banks that had people up in arms at the sheer amount of money involved. The B of E wanted to explain why the QE policy wasn't necessarily going to lead directly to runaway inflation or debasing of the currency, because QE was totally different than the process by which money is created in the regular economy. So how, then, is this money created? The B of E paper has this to say. Commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. 
When a bank makes a loan, for example, to someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it does not typically do so by giving them thousands of pounds worth of banknotes. Instead, it credits their bank account with a bank deposit the size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created. For this reason, some economists have referred to bank deposits as fountain pen money, created at the stroke of bankers' pens when they approve loans. And here's one of the paper's authors explaining further. And one of the key points of the article is that banks create additional broad money whenever they make a loan. And while this is nothing new, it is sometimes overlooked as the main way in which money is created. And it runs contrary to the view sometimes put forward that banks can only lend out deposits that they already have. In fact, loans create deposits, not the other way around. Nope. Still not quite getting it. Uh, me either. But I think I understand it a bit better than I did when I started. We're not going to spend more time circling this particular concept, but suffice it to say, the folks who are most likely to develop conspiracy theories about how the Fed is selling us all into fiat currency slavery to mysterious international banking interests don't understand it any better than we do. The problem is, they think they understand the whole thing very well indeed. Thanks so much. On to the next conspiracist's creed, this one titled The Tyranny of the Federal Reserve, written by one Brian O'Brien, who kicks us off by focusing his ire on the fact that the 12 banks that make up the Federal Reserve System are not public institutions, as you might have assumed. There is no starker example of the fact that the 12 regional banks are privately run corporations than the fact that the banker Jamie Dimon was serving on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York during the 2007 financial crisis, while also serving as the president, chairman, and chief executive officer of J.P. Morgan Chase. Wall Street's largest bank. While Diamond was serving on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, J.P. Morgan Chase received more than $390 million in emergency loans from the Fed. They didn't want the loans. J.P. Morgan was not in any trouble at all during the financial crisis. Like, you don't have to have any affection for Jamie Diamond to think that. This is all very well documented. J.P. Morgan had to take the loans because it was very important to the Fed as they bailed out various other organizations that everybody be seen to be taking these loans so nobody got singled out. And I say this as somebody who thinks the Federal Reserve should have done the bailout in a profoundly different way. Jamie Dimon has way too much power and J.P. Morgan does get a, a subsidy from being too big to fail. Its debt is cheaper than it should be because of the implicit assumption in markets that it's so big that the Federal Reserve and Congress would somehow have to prop it up. That's bad. That's really bad news. But like what's so crazy about this is that it makes it impossible to rationally talk about the things that are wrong with the American financial system by wrapping it all up into this conspiracy that only smart people can see. It's crazy. Here again, the stridency and overreach in tone and content of the critique of the Fed issued by O'Brien serves to paper over the legitimacy of some of his points. But our author has more axes to grind. For example, do you know that every dollar is just another debt nail in the coffin the international bankers and their precious Fed have stuffed you into? Every dollar in existence is a debt that ultimately must be repaid to a bank, at interest. On its face, this might seem absurd. After all, we use money to pay off debt. How can money itself be debt? But make no mistake, our money is debt. The dollar bills in your wallet and the digits in your bank accounts actually represent debts that must be repaid with interest, which are profits collected by banks. So the reason why I'm laughing is that this reads like a guy who just learned how money is created. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> That's like, it's honestly, it's it's like reading this guy is like talking to a 10-year-old who just discovered how babies are made. And the 10-year-old is like, can you believe it? That's super gross. 
And you're like, yeah, it is kind of gross, buddy, but that is the way it was always done. So this guy's like, can you believe that money is debt? That's crazy. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, it's crazy, but it is the way we always did it. He's describing fairly accurately the way the financial system works as this novelty that was dreamed up by the Fed when, in fact, it's just a description of how money has always worked. Money has always been a form of debt. Every time that you look at any sort of historical market, there's both coins and debt creation. They've always worked together. The way we do it now is simply a new form of debt creation. And the way we use the Fed to regulate that debt creation imperfectly is just, you know, another attempt to figure out how to make sure that money works well for everyone. Moving on to the business cycle. Seriously, when you started the show, did you envision doing exposés of conspiracist allegations about the business cycle? Not in the slightest, Dana. This traditional view of business cycles completely ignores the role lending from banks has in driving expansionary periods which lead to booms, and the role of banks in tightening lending which lead to contraction periods. It's all the fault of rising wages, you see, but it is the banks that cause the cycle, not the businesses and workers. And it was the banks that created the Federal Reserve under the premise that the Fed would smooth out this so-called business cycle to reduce the pain disruption, and dislocation that occur at the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, that's true. Business cycle theory tends to assume that debt is pulled from businesses and not pushed from banks. But again, the Fed was an imperfectly democratic, imperfect tool to try and smooth this out. So the fact that this doesn't always work doesn't mean that the Fed is a conspiracy. It just means that the Fed is not perfect at doing its job. To their credit, both of our authors to this point have seemed to try to avoid the third rail of international financial conspiracy discussions. Which we might as well call the when are they going to get around to blaming the Jews issue. But unfortunately, O'Brien eventually strays too close to the fire in his discussion of the unbelievably historically loaded term usury. Throughout the ages, the moneylending was often likened to a parasite, one who feeds off the labor of its host, the people who must work for a living. He engorges himself like a blood-filled leech on the money of the people and grows increasingly fat and wealthy, while the people toil under the heavy burden of debt. Because of the negative effects of lending money at interest, time and again, in place after place, the practice of usury was scorned and made illegal. For millennia in Europe, usury was banned, but the restrictions fell away as the demand for gold increased due to the needs of commerce and government. You know, he didn't actually mention Jewish people in that quote. True, but usury, that is, the practice of charging interest on a loan, has been so closely linked historically to racist ideas of money-hungry Jews by anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists that the term practically screams Rothschilds, Jewish bankers, etc. And the image of a blood-filled leech in this context is totally irresponsible. But why listen to us? Breen? This is just bullshit. Like everything that we know about usury law was that it was highly selective. It tended to be reserved for the worst abuses. And so often your social standing was what gave you the ability to lend money and not be considered a usurer. This stuff is just gross because you can smell the anti-Semitism behind the description. These are all very obvious red flags. It is not true that Christians were not allowed to lend. That's just horseshit. There were distinctions made between the kinds of lending that people did. So merchant credit was not considered usury. And often you would structure something so that it looked like a merchant credit. Usury was not the act of lending itself. 
but the abuse of lending. There are a million different ways to define what abuse is. But crucially, if we think historically about the idea of usury, lending money at interest was not inherently usurious. Abusing people through lending money at interest was. You cannot historically equate usury and lending with a one-to-one relationship. Usury was always the abuse of lending. Lending has always existed. It's like saying, what if I told you, Jesuit, you would be fascinated to learn that in the Middle Ages, stay with me, sexual congress was considered sinful and therefore forbidden. And because sexual congress was sinful and forbidden, nobody had sex in the Middle Ages. Sex was invented later. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.